I'm Calla Cofield, and you're listening to the Physics Buzz Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking with journalist and author Seth Mnookin about his latest book, The Panic Virus, which I will tell you right now is not a physics book. The book is basically a look at the history of the controversy surrounding vaccines, focusing pretty heavily on the vaccine autism fears that have been around now for about a decade and a half. So why are we featuring a book about a medical issue on a physics podcast? And when I started it, my, my interest really was using this story and this controversy as a way to get to the issue of how we as a society kind of make decisions about what we count uh, as truth and when we decide to believe in experts, and and when we decide that we're more comfortable going with the advice of our of our neighbors or people we see on the playground or going with our, our, our gut intuition. So it turns out this story is not just about a medical issue. It's about instances in which the opinions of some members of the public go against what science tells us is true. Scenarios like this can have dangerous consequences, both for science and for the public. Physics is all too familiar with this. There was the scenario about five years ago when someone said that the Large Hadron Collider was going to blow up the world. And pressing on the physics community now is the largely held belief that humans have no impact on the Earth's rising temperatures, even though science clearly tells us otherwise. So Mnookin's book focuses on the very fervent belief by some members of the public that vaccines can, in some cases, cause autism. Those beliefs are held true despite the fact, and I can't emphasize this enough, there is no scientific evidence to support them. It's important for the scientific community to understand how these things happen and ultimately how to stop them. More than likely, you've heard something, somewhere from someone, about the hypothesis that vaccines can cause autism. And I'll tell you right now, that's mainly because the people who believe that vaccines cause autism are very vocal about it. But if you didn't know that, you might think, well, why would we still be talking about this idea if there weren't some truth to it? I mean, if the medical establishment knew for sure that vaccines don't cause autism, wouldn't that just close the book, be the last we hear of it? The answer, unfortunately, is no. Being confronted with a scientific truth doesn't always change someone's opinion. In fact, it can harden their opinion. We human beings would like to believe that if we're simply told the truth, then we can make sound and reasonable decisions based on it. But science is showing us that we are not the objective, logical creatures that we'd often like to think we are. We, as a species, are kind of programmed to be poor assessors of risk. One of the reasons why it often doesn't work to just kind of, you know, lay it out the way it is, is because of the difficulty that we have 
in, in making sound, wise decisions when confronted with two choices, each of which carries some amount of risk. Measles, mumps, rubella, polio, whooping cough. These are just a few examples of vaccine-preventable diseases. Most people living in developed nations have never seen someone suffer from one of these diseases. But that's the curse of vaccines. The better they work, the more people forget how terrible the diseases are. Over the last 10 years, a growing number of parents have chosen to not vaccinate their children based on fears that the vaccines cause more harm than good. And the result has been a resurgence in many vaccine-preventable diseases. In 2010, the United States saw the highest number of reported cases of pertussis, also known as whooping cough, since 1959. In 2010, in California alone, 10 infants under the age of three months old died of whooping cough. This is a disease that is largely preventable. Babies that old can't receive the pertussis vaccine, but they are affected by herd immunity. So when older children are vaccinated, the disease can't survive for very long in the population, and it's less likely to infect the weakest members. In 2012, there were 18 deaths in the United States from whooping cough. So in the case of vaccines, what, what happens is you get parents who are aware that there is a theoretical risk to not vaccinating and are aware that there is a theoretical risk to vaccinating. But because making the decision to give a child a shot seems like a, something that's proactive in a way that not vaccinating is not, you have parents who are way overestimating the risk just by multitudes of a child having an adverse reaction to a vaccine and uh, similarly way underestimating the risks of having an unvaccinated child. And in this country, and in fact in, in a lot of countries, uh, especially in the West, over the last couple of years, the last decade, there's been an enormous increase in, in the number of vaccine-preventable disease outbreaks. And this is oftentimes a, a pretty direct result of uh, low vaccine uptake or, or vaccine noncompliance. It's important to note that there is an active campaign to spread the idea that vaccines cause autism and other ailments in children. That kind of campaign is one driving force behind a story like this. And it hasn't always been the role of the scientific community to actively compete with those types of misinformation campaigns. But that is changing. When, when this specific controversy surrounding autism first cropped up, which was in, the, in, in 1998, I think what you saw on the part of the, of the scientific community and the medical community in large part was a sense that they didn't need to be in the kind of public communication game, you know, that that was not part of their purview the kind of dominant paradigm for patient-doctor interactions for, you know, much of the 20th century was the doctor tells you what you should do, and that's how it goes. And, and I think the scientific and medical communities were 
a little bit slow to recognize that, you know, the 21st century is a, a, a whole different thing. And we don't accept authority the way that we used to. Simply stating something is, is no longer sufficient. And there's a real need to have information that is comprehensible and digestible by the public that's freely available. On the bright side, this may be one area where the scientific community has adapted and changed. The websites for the Center for Disease Control, the American Medical Association, and other important associations and agencies now provide information directly addressing concerns about vaccines. But it's not just about getting the truth out there. Mnuchin specified that information needs to be comprehensible and digestible by the public. And that's sometimes a challenge for scientists. For example, in 1999, the CDC published a report addressing concerns about an additive called thimerosal, which was used as a preservative in some vaccines. The report stated that, quote, there are no data or evidence of any harm, end quote. What the report should have said was that thimerosal was shown to be safe. That's the statement the public needed to hear. The one they got was accurate, but it was undigestible. People who still fervently believed that thimerosal was harmful actually used this statement against the CDC. They believed it shed doubt on the conclusions of the report. The reason the CDC phrased their conclusion that way is because of a nuance of scientific semantics, that you can never prove a negative. You can't say that vaccines have absolutely no connection to autism any more than you can say that Bozo the Clown has no connection to autism. All you can say is that in the extensive, extensive studies that have been done, there is zero evidence that shows any causal connection between vaccines and autism. And that's all you can say about anything. And so what you get too often in press coverage of a, quote, controversy like this is the, the media treating that more as if it's an on the one hand, on the other hand issue, and less as if that's just an example of the particular semantics of um, of science and the scientific method. Parsing the careful wording of scientific conclusions can be tricky, and it has posed problems for the physics community as well. Around 2007, the particle physics community was gearing up to turn on a huge new particle accelerator, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN in Geneva, Switzerland. Then suddenly, someone outside the scientific community made the claim that the machine might destroy the world. We've talked about this event on the podcast before, and suffice it to say, no one within the physics community could find any reason why this might be true. But various events led to the media jumping on the story and broadcasting it as a legitimate debate. So you got some physicists who were being interviewed by the media. Some of those physicists said that there was a non-zero chance that the LHC would destroy the world. Let me reinforce something here. 
there is a non-zero chance that later today a famous Hollywood movie star will show up at my door and ask me to go on a road trip to Brazil. It's not outside the realm of possibility, but every shred of evidence I have suggests that it will not happen. However, until the clock strikes midnight, I can't say for sure. The problem is many media outlets thought that non-zero chance meant a reasonable chance. This led to some pretty scary and inaccurate headlines. The physicists figured out their mistake and corrected their phrasing. And I think that what that illustrated is that scientists in every discipline really need to think beforehand about what message they want to get out there, how they're going to get it out there, and how that message then might mutate into something that they weren't prepared for. But of course, scientists shouldn't have to bear all the blame here. A good science journalist will know that you can't prove a negative. In the case of the LHC scare, there were media outlets that diffused the end of the world claims. In the case of the vaccine autism scare, things were arguably worse. At best, the media demonstrated poor judgment and poor journalism. At worst, it perpetuated a lie that led to a public health crisis. Major and reputable news outlets like the New York Times, the BBC, CNN, the Times of London, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, all at one point or another misrepresented the situation and made it seem as though reliable sources within the medical and scientific communities supported the idea that vaccines cause autism. This was an example of a story in which I think the people who are most to blame are, are our peers, uh, other journalists. I mean, Andrew Wakefield, the now disgraced doctor in, in the UK who actually has lost his medical license, he was the person who was the lead author on the study that kind of initially promoted this vaccine's autism theory. A lot of people look at him as kind of the, the, the main bad guy in this. Um, and certainly, I, I think a lot of fault rests on his shoulders, but the only reason that he was able to get this incredibly irresponsible and inaccurate message out there was because there were a lot of people in the media just totally willing to run with it because it was sensational, because it was, uh, you know, frightening, because it was scaremongering, whatever. I really believe that the, the institution that bears the most blame in this is the media. But yeah, there were certainly moments when, when I kind of shuddered and, and buried my head in my hands and kind of felt like, how is it that this profession, this calling, which I really feel like is a very noble thing to do, ultimately, did so poorly in this instance? Ideally, good journalism and good science writing can prevent these kinds of falsehoods from spreading. Has the media learned something from this story? I guess yes and yes and no, and probably largely no, unfortunately, because, you know, I, I, I think yes, for the reporters who cover this issue, 
I think absolutely this is a story that that they are, those people are unlikely to produce the type of copy that 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 caused this controversy in the first place. I, I think that there are a lot of people, a lot of science journalists, especially who are just doing incredible work and have done incredible work on this on this issue. And I think today you see the coverage surrounding this is, is, is much more responsible, much more clear-eyed, much less willing to fall into the, on the one hand, on the other hand, trap. But it's not those reporters who are the ones ultimately making the final decision at, you know, big daily papers or um, nightly newscasts. And, and I think overall in, in the media, there's still a dangerous tendency to give airtime to views that are demonstrably false, again, under this kind of pretense of letting people have their say or, you know, and I saw this actually just, I guess, Monday in USA Today. Uh, USA Today on their website featured a video about, quote, natural ways to avoid the flu. And it turned out it wasn't a video that was produced by USA Today, although it was featured on their website and and was branded as a USA Today video. And it, it was a couple minute clip where I think someone in, I believe in Michigan, was talking about all of the ways that you can protect yourself against the flu apart from getting a vaccine. And I know that the science and medical reporters at, the, at USA Today were horrified. And in fact, the science and medical reporters at USA Today have been way out front on, on this issue and uh, this issue being vaccines and have done just incredible, excellent work on this. And then, you know, one decision made by someone on USA Today's video team uh, that may or may not have any interaction with the people in the newsroom seemed in this instance to certainly have no interaction with people on the science desk. They put out something that was just so incredibly, incredibly dangerous and irresponsible when you're in the middle of a countrywide flu epidemic that, you know, it, it was, it, that was a little bit sobering and kind of sad, I thought. So circling back to your question about have we learned our lesson, um, it depends on, on who you define we as. The media's prioritizing of catchy headlines over accurate reporting is something that might not go away anytime soon. And actually, this is something that we may start seeing from scientists. Going forward, I think scientists are going to need to do a lot more kind of selling. Selling of their, of their research goals, selling of their work, selling of why they should get this million, ten million, hundred million dollar grant and someone else shouldn't. And I think that that is just going to be interesting and tricky and dangerous, that, that, that shift, because uh, when you're selling something that the inclination is or your tendency is to give the person who's buying it what they want. And uh, people want big results. They want cures for cancer. They want, they want a solution to global warming. They don't want the type of slow incremental progress that science is actually all about. And uh, so I think that's something that's going to be really, really interesting to watch going forward. 
So who can be held accountable when a falsehood is propagated as truth, even though science clearly shows us otherwise? There's responsibility on the shoulders of the public, on the scientific community, and on the media. Somehow, those groups have to learn to communicate with each other or live with the consequences. Once again, I'd like to thank Seth Nukin for being on the podcast. His book is called The Panic Virus. He also writes for a blog of the same name on the PLOS Blog Network. That's all for the Physics Buzz podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more Physics Buzz.